Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're in Poland, in Warsaw, Poland, mm -hmm. at .NET Developer Days. Um, our friend Masiej is uh, running this thing. And uh, they've got, uh, I don't know, upwards of 1,500 people here. Something like that. Yeah, it was a full room for Mr. Guthrie's keynote, that's for sure. Yeah, we introduced Scott this mm -hmm. morning. And... Um, had a, we've got this little room carved out. It's a little bit boxy sounding, so we're just going to go with it. may hear a little bit of an echo, but not little, the end of the world. A little echo, but we got some privacy, so it's good. Yeah. And we've got a few podcasts coming up. I'm not sure because of the way, the order in which we're moving things around. Perhaps yeah. we've done this intro before. I'm not sure. Yeah, but we'll figure it out, you know. Yeah. We record, life is time shifted. That's right. We've got events and things to do, so. We do. We got to figure it out. Well, we're talking quantum stuff today, so because of that, I have a very special quantum edition nice. of Better Know a Framework. All right, dude, what do you got? I suspect you guys are going to talk about this anyway, and I notice I said you guys because <laughs> I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. Richard can at least converse in this uh, topic. I'm going to be going, hmm, a lot. But it turns out that uh, Google says it has achieved suprem quantum supremacy, and you'll tell me what that means, but I think what it means is they've used a quantum computer to solve a problem that could not be solved any other way well with would take substantially longer yeah they, longer than anyone on earth could live well they, they initially said ten thousand years where the where the quantum computer solved it in three minutes yeah. although later i think a group from ibm the other guys busy building a quantum computer said ah uh, you know with classical computer we could probably knock that out in two and a half days i remember when doing a dir at a dos prompt took three minutes <laughs> yes you know, when the, you took a minute for the drive to spin up and right. all that stuff, yeah, that's right. And you wondered if it was broken, and there you're just like, no, it's no, just, this is how long it takes. How long it takes? Go get a cup yeah. of tea. There's some controversy around that, but we'll save it for the show, without a doubt. Yeah, so but it is we, an interesting item. Yeah, and we'll link to this uh, news article here, and uh, you guys can talk about it on the show. But I just wanted to get us started in that uh, quantum vein. Nice one. Yeah. Who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? Well, sticking in the quantum vein, I pulled up a comment from a show 1587, hmm. which we did back at NDC Sydney last year with uh, John Azaria. Yeah. We talking about Q-sharp and quantum computing. I had actually a really fun conversation. And Nicholas Baring had this comment. This is from about a year ago. He says, the segment of the show giving the background on how nitrogen fixation could be solved with quantum computing and the impact that would have was especially relevant to me. And this goes back to that, well, we have figured out how to make fertilizers using the Fischer-Brosch process, which takes a lot of energy, but it make, allows you to make ammonia, which you can then make into fertilizer. Right. Plants have been doing it for forever, right? Bean plants have mm. this nitrogenase uh, enzyme right. that naturally pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and affix it, make it into ammonia. Right. And they don't use all that energy, right? They actually mm. use a combination, it's some kind of, we don't really understand how it works, but some kind of catalytic reaction between molybdenum and iron that uh, creates nitrogen with very low amounts of energy, plant-level mm. energy. Wow. And so... Uh, Eat bean bombs. Yeah. We have not figured out how it works, and if we did, we could reproduce it and probably do some great things with it. Mm. And it's one of these great quantum problems you could solve, although they're saying somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 qubits required 
to actually solve Whatever it. that means. Yeah, oh. we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, but Nicholas goes on to say, uh, I've been working in software technology for a handful of years, but before that, I was a farmer. Huh. I used to listen to .NET Rocks from the seat of a tractor, which That's is cool. awesome. <laughs> and it's part of how I prepared myself for the career change. Huh. Nitrogen fixation in soybeans was of particular importance to soil fertility, so it's one of the pieces of crop sciences that was most relevant to me day to day. We applied commercial products that included cultures of nitrogen-fixing bacteria to boost the production of root nodules, which is where the nitrogen actually ends up. Hmm. We'd pay special attention to soil temperatures to optimize growth at the correct phases to make sure that bacteria would grow correctly to optimize yields. And when scouting crops to inspect plant health and look for pests, we'd pull the odd plant to inspect those root nodules. So hearing Richard and John go back and forth over this problem put a huge smile on my face. Hmm. It's amazing to be able to tie crazy high-tech and super abstract problems mm. to things that are important for the people out there getting their boots muddy to produce food for the masses. Wow. That's okay. so cool. That's where we were. I mean, that's we were pretty wound up about this. Mm -hmm. This is one of, you know, we always think about quantum and the abstract. But this right. particular problem, it just has direct effects over our ability to feed the planet. And uh, the, yeah, ramif very cool. the ramifications are huge. You know, I went back, as I am prone to do when I take notes on things like this. Mm -hmm. the, the estimate right now is that 1% of all the energy consumed by humanity on the planet today is to make fertilizer. Mm. 1%. Wow. You know, it doesn't sound like a big number, but it's, no, it it's is a lot. terawatts of energy. Yeah. And uh, the fact that we could change that through a little bit of com computational capabilities, pretty powerful. Yeah, very. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you, and if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment on that show and I read it on a new show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Go ahead and send us a tweet. We'll give you three and a half minutes. <laughs> go! Go! Go now. All right. All right. It is my uh, extreme privilege to be able to pronounce Johnny's last name. <laughs> uh, Johnny Hoybers. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Is a passionate .NET architect, developer, and trainer since 2008. And he teaches programming in .NET and C Sharp for a higher education institute for adults. And he's been doing that since 2010. He's been passionate about .NET ever since it was released. His areas of expertise are C-Sharp, WCF, ASP.NET, .NET Core, Azure, and ALM using the Microsoft stack. And in his free time, he likes traveling, visiting theme parks all over the world, and is always searching for the next technological challenge. And Q-Sharp fits in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> yeah. Did you get interested in quantum computing first or Q-Sharp first? Well, actually, I... I got interested in, in quantum computing just because I was a visitor in a conference in Belgium, mm -hmm. and some of the speakers were uh, one of the speakers was uh, was talking about Q sharp. Okay. I was like, okay, I know nothing about uh, quantum computing. Uh -huh. uh, Q sharp sounds like something .NET related, so let's have a look. Yeah. Um, when the session was over, I was bleeding from the ears probably. <laughs> um, yeah. I had something like, okay, I. I, I Got like the, the, the story, but not quite the details. Yeah. So I decided to dig deeper myself to really understand what the session was all about because I didn't want to feel stupid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And enough so that you're, you're now spreading the word. You're doing talks on Q sharp. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I got a question from a college in Belgium to do a talk on quantum computing. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I, I, I was checking out what, what Q sharp was all about. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very fun for a developer, me being a developer, to be able to 
make my ideas come across to other developers. Sure. Yeah. Um, I also think it helps you learn better too. Exactly. Like preparing yeah. to teach seems to be a great way to dive deeply into it. Yeah, because it. You, you should partly understand you would what hope. it's yeah, what it's all about. So. But the process of teaching actually helps you understand, exactly. doesn't it? I mean, yeah. sometimes I've been up in front of a classroom and something comes out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Wow, I'm I mean, smarter I knew, than I thought. But I knew it. Yeah. It's just that it didn't like click somewhere else, you know? It sort of fits together with something else. So, uh, me coming from completely out of the blue, I mean, I know you remember that conversation that we had last year. Yeah, that's sure. How, that's how long ago it, it, it goes back. But address the comment that Richard read. What do you think about uh, the guy on the tractor? Well, it's, it's very interesting because when I heard the talk about Q Sharp, for me, indeed, what you said was that quantum computing is, is like an abstract thing mm -hmm. today. And, and, and to hear a story like that, to, to really have like a, an implementation of that sounds very interesting. Yeah. And it was John who brought up this story because also often we're talking, when we talk about quantum computing and, and modeling things, most people talk about cryptography. Yeah. Right. And exactly. it, which is, yeah. which I feel like is a red herring. A, it's infinitely solvable. We can move away from prime based encryption anytime we want. It's just that we're good at it. Uh, mm. and the actual requirements com computationally for solving, uh, cryptography problems is like 4,000 qubits. Like it's incredibly difficult. We'll do so many more useful things with quantum computing before we, that ever becomes even an issue. And the, the, this class of problems, these, these enzyme related problems that all fall into the same sort of matrix somewhere in the 120 to 180 qubit problem spaces because they're doing electron interactions. That's the, what it's about. It's like, how do electrons interact? And we just can't, in traditional computing, you cannot figure out a 180 electron interaction. You're nope, not going to get there. Too much state to store. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's, this is the, you know, sort of traveling salesman kind of problem. Um, you guys will explain what the hell you're talking about, <laughs> right? <clears throat> We, we, you, you're talking about the electrons going around a set of atoms and how they interchange with each other, mm -hmm. how they go up an energy state and down an energy state in a way that allows for a chemical reaction, right? Yeah. An ionic bond reaction is the technical term. Okay. There's so many electrons involved and they, they move in probabilistic ways. Like we can't actually watch them. It's more complicated than that. You have to do this hugely deep you know, 180 order prob probability calculation. Like factorial yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah so that's the reason why we have these like applications running on everybody's computer right. to, to all of us together try to solve a small part of, of, one of a problem like that, like right. folding at home, for example. Yeah. 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 A, yeah the enzyme, yeah. the protein folding Pro yeah. problem, very yeah. similar class of problem. Hmm. So what is a qubit? Because I mean, I remember. I remember forgetting. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. Well, it's, I the, remember. it's the representation of a bit, but then on a quantum computer. Okay. So uh, a bit on a classical computer is like a zero or a one. Mm. But with a qubit or a quantum bit, we really want to have an additional information. So we can Multiple also... We states. Can, yeah, we can also have the one and the zero, but we can have uh, the two at the same time. Mm. And that's what the qubit uh, will do for us, hopefully. And this yeah. only gets interesting when you get bunches of qubits together. It's no different than a regular CPU, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, we are four thousand. The Intel four thousand four was four bit, but shortly after that, we went eight bit, and we've just kept increasing bits ever since, because you are able to manipulate more memory and do larger numerical calculations. Like you want more bits. And from what I also remember, um, 
Q sharp is sort of a, a way that you can model quantum computing. You know, obviously not running on a quantum. Even we don't actually have any quantum computers. But if we did have a quantum computer, that would be a language that we could use. Exactly. Well, yeah. And jumping back to the your, the the uh, better know you read. Mm-hmm. Google's ba- when Google says we've achieved quantum supremacy, what they're basically implying or saying is our quantum computer works. Yeah. Right. Their yeah. Sycamore processor has supposedly done a computation now, while not particularly useful, is complex enough mm. that classical computing would take much longer to do it. When you said 10,000 years. Well, they said 10,000 years, yeah. and the IBM guys came back and said, eh, two and a half days. Now, there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. There's a little there. discrepancy there. But, you know, this is the problem when you play with these, these sorts of orders of magnitude. On the other hand, three minutes versus two and a half days, not a trivial difference no, e- no, either, right? I don't know where you fall on, on this, Johnny. It's like, I'm suspicious because they haven't just published. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also very difficult to, to check probably because, okay, you can say that the classical uh, algorithm or the classical counterpart will take, right. will take like too long, like 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, but maybe you just didn't find... You didn't write a good algorithm. Yeah, we did, you didn't write a good algorithm. Mm. So it's, it's very hard to, to check, I think. But it's very interesting that this discussion is going on. Well, and that it feels like we're that close. The Sycamore processor that they're talking about, and it's a one-of-a-kind essentially was a 54-qubit processor. Although okay. they came to the conclusion that one of the qubits was too unreliable, hmm. so the, all of all they did was a 53-qubit, which, that's interesting, right? Like, just the that they're talking about consistency and reliability in these things that have to be cooled with liquid helium. Like, they're, they're so fragile. Like, in proper scientific method, there would be a paper published that, other people would then be able to reproduce the results. Right. Yep. All you got to do is build your own quantum computer. I mean, how hard could it be? Yeah. And we still don't really understand, would the computer actually have to be in the same physical orientation with to the gravitational lines of the Earth? <laughs> Who you knows? Know? Like, this is, hmm. this is how goofy we're talking yeah. right now with yeah. quantum computers. Like, they just seem so unstable. You might get repetitive results out of a particular machine, but would you get repetitive results out of two different machines? Good question. And they're still there's there's they are still finding the the elements that they need to use to represent the qubit. Right. So different companies are doing it in different ways. Yeah. Some, some use electrons, some use photons. Mm-hmm. They're even trying to find like bigger items, like uh, whole atoms, right, to store uh, the qubit state. It's actually, so, store the superposition hmm. states. My, my, Microsoft's keen on the fermion approach, which is weird. I I've been equating this when when folks have been asking me to the idea of what. M- um, mainframes were like before silicon came down, mm. right? Like we had ma- large scale computers in the 40s and 50s, you know, starting with the bomb, which was, you know, Alan Turing's computer that helped crack the Enigma code. Mm-hmm. Not a piece of silicon on that whole thing, right? That was all mechanical relays. A bunch of switches. Switches, yeah. right? And programming was very challenging, but, and yet it solved an, an encryption problem that was incredibly difficult. But it wasn't until, I mean, the germanium transistor first, but shortly after that, silicon substrates, that that the concept of the CPU stabilized. Well, and you skipped over tube computers, yes, right? Yes, various tubes. I mean, there were... But ENIAC, wasn't wasn't that a tube computer? Yeah, well, or they'd even be mixtures. And it, it, you've got this fun dynamic between the science of building a gate and the engineering of taking a bunch of gates and doing something with mm. it. 
And at various times in the early stages of classical computing, you'd have engineers, okay, you guys have, you know, scientists have come up with this gate using vacuum tubes. Let's go take a bunch of them and mm. make a gigantic mainframe that we have to cool and all the problems that there lies in. And then Bell Labs spits out the transistor. And that, I mean, not immediately, but over time, it just, it's utterly dominated until you get into the 60s. And yeah. that's what made, you know, that is why the Silicon Valley is called the Silicon Valley, mm. because they started the, this is Fairchild Semiconductor and ultimately Intel. Intel, like, yeah. That's where all this comes from. We're not there with quantum computers. Yeah, we are still, we're still looking for a transistor. That's actually the reason why I'm interested in quantum computing, because I was born in 85. I missed all of that fun stuff. So <laughs> for me, my, my mom just bought me my first computer. It was like a, a fully functioning working mm -hmm. computer. And I just missed all of the history of, of that coming, coming to fruition. It was an fruition. that just yeah, works. Exactly. So right. now with quantum computing, I have a sense like, okay, I can really live this invention going somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really looking forward. Yeah, we haven't said anything about D-Wave yet and quantum annealing. Is, you know, I'm already bleeding from my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Make it stop. But, but I think part of what makes this so confusing is you have a certain number of difficult mathematical principles in the form of superposition in quantum computing. And then you have all these engineering problems where it's like, well, how do we manifest these? How do we actually build them? And the fact that each company playing in this world is doing it differently. So no wonder there's confusion. Like, how would you otherwise understand this? I just... <laughs> Man, it just helped me understand what the heck makes quantum computing work. Well, I mean, I guess it's the qubit, right, that has zero in one state, but it also could be both at the same time. Yeah, well, actually, the both at the same time is a very complex state. Um, there's, there's different examples, but I like the example of the block sphere. I, I don't know if you heard about that. I may you, have. You can, you can like represent the state of a qubit with a vector in three-dimensional space in, in a sphere. And okay. uh, the, the origin of the vector is in the center of the sphere. And it's, it's just pointing somewhere uh -oh. within that sphere. And you can have like the zero state, which is pointing straight up into the sphere, like right. on, on, on the z-axis. And then the, the state one pointing straight down on the z-axis. Okay. And then superposition means whatever is in between. So if you just change the vector... For, for example, horizontally on the, yeah. on the XOR or the Y axis, that's superposition. And, and then when you observe the qubit right. to make it collapse, it will collapse again to the one or the zero state. But so the observer effect is part of the whole mystery of, uh, quantum computing. Yeah. So I, I, I like to, to look at the qubit state by looking into this, uh, three dimensional space, uh, block sphere. Okay. Uh, because then you can see how, how, how complex and how much information we can actually store in a single qubit. And it becomes more interesting because if you add one qubit to the system, the amount of state that you can store doubles. So you have the exponentiality there. Yeah. So you only have, if you have a 100 qubit system, it's, you can have an immense amount of, of state stored in that system and you just so have to add one qubit to that to just double the amount of, of, uh, of, of state you can so store. So how much state can one qubit store yeah one state one 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 vector state um I, I actually when i when i tried to dig deep into the quantum computing stuff i actually bought uh, a book which i'm which i have here with me which is this one 
quantum uh, computing for computer scientists. Yeah, so okay. it's it's specifically addressing addressing quantum computing for people who do computer science. I see. Um, and the first chapters in the book explain the the basic mathematical skills that you need mm. in order to tackle this. So there's a, a chapter on uh, linear algebra. There's a chapter on complex numbers. Sure. And it really helped me to refresh all these all this stuff from from school. Yeah. And then it 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 really explains um, all this state information by just showing you the, ma the math that's basically behind it. Okay. It really looks frightening if you look at it for the first time, but if yeah. you really work with it, it, it becomes more, more uh, understandable. Okay. So the answer to how, m how many values can one qubit have well, is a lot. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a formula that I, that I saw that if you, if you would look at the state of a qubit, you can actually rewrite that as uh, a specific number times the state zero plus a specific number times the state one. So that's the combined state. So there's like some probability of it collapsing to one, some probability of collapsing to zero. And these probabilities are the two numbers that I'm talking about. Oh, I see. And these numbers, you can write them mathematically as a complex number. So like AI plus B, where A is an imaginary number and B is the real number. So from the complex numbers from math, it's a long time ago. Um, and if you look at a value like that, you can actually have a vector in two-dimensional space. So A times I plus B, where A and B are the, 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 the two distances in... in, in so a metric butt time. Yeah, exactly. What but you have two of those values. Yeah. So you have alpha times the state, uh, or the first value times the state of zero, and then plus the second value times the state one. If you combine those two, you have your three-dimensional vector in wow. your block sphere. And that's the amount of data, it's not really data, it's the state of this qubit system that you right, can but store. The, but it is data. It's how much it can represent. Exactly, yeah. It's a large number. And then when you add a cube, another qubit in, now it exponentially grows. Yes. Because yeah. for every state of the first qubit, you have all the states of the second qubit. Combined. Indeed. Combined, yeah. yeah. So that becomes... Jeez. Yeah. So it's very easy to have this, this math you can write the math down on a piece of paper for one qubit, for two qubits, and then mm. maybe for three qubits, and then from four qubits it becomes very, very difficult because you, you need a lot of paper to write all the, all the math, but right. it helps you understand. And so how does Q-sharp sort of let you live in that world without a quantum computer? Well, Q-sharp actually is, is the language where you can write your quantum algorithm or quantum circuit. Mm. A circuit means that you just have your qubits and you can do operations on those qubits using the, the basic quantum gates, like you have basic classical gates. Yeah. Uh, like the basic classical gates are AND and OR and yeah. NOT and those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, for a quantum system, those gates are different. So you, you, have, you have flip gates, which will flip the vector in your block sphere around mm. a certain axis. So for example, <laughs> the, the simplest one is the X gate. It's a bit flip gate. Okay. So it will flip um, your vector around the x-axis, which is very simple because if it's pointing straight down, it's state one. Mm. And if you flip it around the x-axis, it will point straight up and it's the state one. So it's actually just a not gate. But it is 3D, so it could be anywhere. Yeah, it could be anywhere indeed. If, if your state is not zero or one, but something yeah. in between, mm. then, then that's going to be something different. But for a simple qubit in state zero, if you put it through an x-gate, it will be one and yeah. vice versa. Okay. And then you have, uh, for example, the Hadamard gate, which will put your qubit in superposition or out of superposition if it was in superposition. And actually, Q-sharp will, will allow you to do these kinds of operations on the qubit level. Okay. So it's, it's not like a, a high level 
uh, programming language. It's, it's right. really okay. You have your qubits you have, and you can just create circuits from them. Right. Okay. Do we need to explain superposition? Yeah, I think he did, which is the superposition is anywhere in between zero and one, right? Yeah, it's all, yeah, all values in between or two values at the same time. You find different yeah. uh, explanations, but it's just hard for us <laughs> humans yeah. to grasp uh, to grasp that concept. I always liked uh, the, the the joke that uh, I heard a long time ago, where they say, "Okay, you have superposition, so it's the two states at the same time." When you have a USB key, when you try to put it inside yeah. of your computer, yeah. um, it never fits. You can turn it around <laughs> it like an infinite amount of times; it will just never fit. And when you observe it, it will collapse to either being upside down or straight, <laughs> and then you can see it, and then you just plug it in. So that's for me. That's the easiest way. <laughs> To explain superposition. And so USB-C is actually a quantum computer. Yeah, because <laughs> you can use it. It's in both states at the same both time. Both states yes. at the same time, yeah. Yeah, and the, the cool thing about the cool thing about Q Sharp is actually that the, the quantum language can really be used on the on a real quantum computer because Microsoft put like layers of ab abstraction in between. Mm -hmm. So for now, we have in Visual Studio the possibility of using C Sharp to run our quantum algorithm in a like a .NET C Sharp simulated environment. Mm. But if Microsoft um, eventually creates like a, a working quantum computer, they can just get Q Sharp running on their quantum computer. It'll be in Azure. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you, and you're not wrong, right? Because so far, everything we've built in quantum computers needs super cooling and yeah. extremely protected environments yeah. like... It's only the cloud operators that will be able to That's afford right. these things. Yeah. We'll only borrow them, you know, by the minute or the three and a half minute, as in. Well, I, I know there's there's different companies, like in re research and development, they're they're really trying to find stuff that we can use as qubits that we don't need to cool down to to almost zero Kelvin. So they're really trying to to find something so we can have like our house quantum computer. Yeah, it's probably not not going to happen very soon, but. The Tandy 2000. <laughs> I was, and I was just reading a paper on time crystals as a possible quant a qubit solution. Uh, th that's a whole other show, just explaining the idea yeah. of a four-dimensional crystal. That sounds funky already. It's just insane. Like, and it, and it, it, it's one of those things where it was theorized 10 years ago. And then, uh, you know, another group of, of scientists sort of went at it and said, well, if that was true, you would need this and this. And they just sort of worked down this pattern until eventually it was taking lasers to certain materials and suddenly they were doing impossible things. And, hmm. it, you know, it, and it didn't violate the conservation of energy or conservation of momentum, but it was in this, uh, you can't extract any energy from it, but they are literally continuously moving crystals, but they may be inherently stable. What I think is fun is we cannot envision what a personal quantum computer would be. For. No. I mean, right now, we're, and it's so much the way we dis mainframes were described in the 50s, mm. you know, back when they said that we think there's a market for six of these in the whole world, right? Yeah. There are certain large-scale problems that we can solve with computers, and that's all we're going to do. And right now, quantum computers, like, there's only so many enzymes, right? There's only so many proteins we can fold. And so a handful of quantum computers in the, you know, 200 qubit class are over a period of a few years going to knock out these problems and then we're going to wonder what to do with them. I mean, that's sort of where we're kind of are right now. We can't think of general purpose utilization of that much computing power. Yeah. Or maybe you can't. Somebody's going to be up to no good with yeah, those things. Yeah, I was thinking that. No, no I mean, I'm pretty sure von Neumann did not 
consider Candy Crush. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. He, he just didn't know, right? We did it. We, you know, we do a joint session every so often about yeah. sort of the story arc of computing. I'm going to talk about Moore's Law. And so I describe the Cray 2 computer doing about 11 gigabits of pro, uh, 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 gigaflops of processing, which is exactly the same as the iPad 2, you know, 30 years later. Except and, that we use the iPad for Candy Crush. Yeah, yeah and, and 30 years is, is so short of a time frame. It's, well, it's crazy. Plus, you know, yeah. it's not even a lifetime, right? It's, yeah. it's enough time to get kids. It's enough, you can go bankrupt a couple of times and get over it. Like, you that's, Do you remember the gig that fits up your nose? Mm-hmm. <laughs> These days, I have a, I have a two hundred fifty six gig that fits up my nose. It was the USB key that was the size of you know one of the things that you plug yeah. in for yeah. a wireless mouse or whatever, and it it was a USB key that was so small it could fit up your nose. So that that used to be a joke, and that then, was a joke. Yeah, and now I've uh, now I've got a two hundred fifty six gig, like yeah, same size, smaller yeah. actually. So I mean, the, USB keys now so small, my fingers are too big. Yeah, to actually handle them. Right. Also, let's hope in 30 years there's a quantum computer that can fit in your nose. Why does it all have to go Oh, my nose? God. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly I'll introduce a certain amount of bronium motion that way. But <laughs> uh, that's a separate problem. Oh, <laughs> oh, no, please stop. And actually, we do need to stop for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. That's Richard Campbell. I'm Carl Franklin. And that is Johnny Hoybiers. And he was talking Q-sharp and quantum. And I'm just barely holding on, folks. And you're probably in my camp. Beyond the uh, cracking of encryption and these weird problems around enzymes and proteins and so forth, like what other problems? What other equations? What are people actually writing in Q-sharp? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, we're building 50 qubit quantum computers at least some of the time now. Mm -hmm. So you'd think we could probably come up with a few problem cases. You know, we were pretty good with making classical computers at 8 bits do useful things, mm -hmm. right? VisiCalc ran on an 8-bit computer. Yeah, that's right. You'd think we could get something, some f useful practice out of a 50-qubit quantum computer. Well, I guess we live in a quantum world, so everything around us is quantum. Everything works quantum. So I guess we can do everything we want with a quantum computer. If you just think about... In the abstract, anyway. Yeah, in the abstract, yeah. yeah. But if, if just think about artificial intelligence, for example, I'm not sure if it's true, but your brain probably works quantum. So if they, if they really want to have like an artificial intelligence mm. and they have quantum computers that are very powerful, then maybe it's going to be a lot easier to, to, to like simulate or even have mm. brain-like uh, capabilities. Of course, first they really need to know how the brain works more yeah. to, to, to be able to reproduce it. But I guess there's the, the, the possibilities are limitless. Yeah, the, the, the current computing power compared to what the possibilities are 
of a quantum, you're thinking of, you know, an intelligent brain. Now we have the brain of like a chihuahua, <laughs> sort of. It, well, I mean, the Shor's algorithm, which is supposed to be the one that can take on prime-based encryption, which seems to be like that's the first test case, like stuff they wanted to try on there. Although I don't know that we've ever been able to make it run well. Yet. Yeah, they, they, they were able to run it on very small numbers. And, right. But hmm. not yeah. significant. It could solve primes like seven. Yeah, a little bit 13. larger, like in, in the thousands, but but not like ten thousand. That was that didn't work. Right, not the massive ones that that, that we're actually using today, yeah, and that we need. Yeah. yeah, well, it's an interesting point there, where it's like quantum computers should be good at finding primes. Which is part of the reason they're going to be good at cracking primes is because they're so good at finding them in the first yep. place. So we'll get longer primes from this. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just think that anybody listening is like I see no practical use for this. It's this pure science thing. The, the scientists will do useful things for this for a while. But again, it, to me, it feels like that's what they said about mainframes in the 50s. Yeah, I just wanted to say the same thing. That's probably what they thought about in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, like, okay, we, we can use this for very specific problems, but no one is going to have a computer at home because no. what are they going to do well, with for. it? Well, the nitrogen problem was a real problem. It's a real right? problem. So, But if you were to model that in Q-sharp and just let it run... I mean, what are the chances of by the time it's finished, before it's finished, somebody will have a quantum computer take that same program and run it and be done with it before this one even finishes? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's possible. Get, well, let me come to this another angle. What is hello world in Q sharp? It's mm -hmm. putting a qubit in superposition and, and just seeing the random values fly between uh, through your ears. <laughs> it's like that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like hello world is just here's a qubit put in superposition and then just do a for loop and print all of all the, the the collapsed states and it's like true false 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 true 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 false true false true. Is the order actually random? Uh, on a real quantum system, it should be random. Yeah. Right. Hmm. In the simulated environment, can can never be. Co completely random. Yeah, no, it's always yeah. pseudo random. So right, and we're only talking true and false, right? Right. So yeah, quantum quantum uh, quantum computers or Q sharps. Hello world is just a series of true and false. So it could be good at creating GUIDs. <laughs> 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 Probably a very expensive way to create a GUID. Faster than you can use. <laughs> <laughs> a stream of goods. Yeah. Well, I, I I know there's there's a company that actually builds an uh, an external device for your PC that creates a true random uh, generated stream of data. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and they they say that they use uh, a chip that that uses quantum uh, quantum uh, stuff to do that. Nice. Well, it's already been stuff. there since the beginning of uh, like 2000 then something, uh, but I'm not sure how they do it. Wait, hmm. A chip that uses quantum stuff. So it's not a quantum computer per se. Well, it's a quantum chip. They say it's a quantum chip. I, I can't really remember the name of the company that what makes does that them. What does that mean, though? Yeah, read their website. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you, I think if you Google for something like uh, a quantum generated random number or something, okay. you, you will the find it. Qantas TRNG, yeah, the true random number yeah, generator. That's the one. That's it's the a one. product. Okay. I'll include it in the show notes. Maybe we need to buy one. They Maybe are you true, need to buy yeah, one. the true random number generator. It's a PCIe card. Uh, so you just slide it into your machine, and you're guaranteed a random. The random today's random number is forty three. <laughs> 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 
Oh, how my. much is this thing? Oh, there's an option called how to buy. Half our listeners are like, what's a PCIe card? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's an online shop. Yay. Oh, wait, they make a USB version. Woohoo. The US the USB. Okay, look at the specs on this thing. So this is a U, this fits in a USB slot. It's USB two. Works on Windows Linux. Uh, four megabits of true quantum randomness. It's a thousand euros. There you go. You really got to need that to spend a thousand dollars on a number generator. Well, yeah. for some applications, you really want true randomness. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, so it looks like they have a module. I'm looking at the at the PCIe boards, and there's like they're four megabit modules, mm. and you can get one four megabit module for thirteen hundred euros, or four of them on it, so sixteen megabits of randomness mm. Of, mm. of quantum randomness for three thousand, three thousand euros. Wow, <sighs> this it's like the ultimate. Are you Christmas. salivating? This is the ultimate <laughs> Christmas present for you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you I'm want to, if you want to geek out, you. yeah, yeah, no kidding. Put that on. It's like you know, I have so many random numbers. I'm the wealthiest man in the world. I couldn't be happier. Oh, I love it. But you know, I guess there's an application, as you said, right? You, see, you can use quantum technology to yep. generate true random numbers. A quantum random number generator. Okay, I've learned something today. Mm. Well. Well, I have, uh, if you, other other examples of Q Sharp, uh, Microsoft uh, includes a lot of samples for all the, the like the algorithms, like Shore. Mm -hmm. There's a, an example in in, in Q Sharp, but also Grover or Deutsch. So all these algorithms, you can just learn how the algorithms work by looking at the quantum. Should circuit. we talk about some of these algorithms? I, I mentioned Shore as the way to attack yeah. prime number values. What's Grover? Well, Grover is is. They call it between quotes searching a database, but it's not really searching a database. And I don't I don't fully understand what it's about. Mm -hmm. um, but they say okay, it's it's about inverting a function, and th that's where it stops for me. Um, I, I understand that it's a probabilistic algorithm, which means it can find, or it can it it can if you if you look at a function, you have an input and you have an output, and it can invert the function, which means you can go uh, the other direction. You can really find a value with a with a certain probability. Mm -hmm. um, and then they they just to make it explainable, they take the the example of searching a database where you have to find a, an item in a database, and they say, okay, um, in a normal al classical algorithm, you have to look at all of the items before you can you can surely say, okay, this is the item you're searching for. Wait, right. so you Maybe give it a result and it gives you the database? <laughs> <laughs> probably not like that. No, but it, it will probably tell you, like, it's it's the item in that location for 80% certainty. Okay. And then you can just use a classical thing, classical program that just checks it. Right. Okay, and if it's a different value, just run your, your, your algorithm again mm. until you find the result. And they say, okay, it's still faster to do it this way than uh, using a classical alg algorithm wow, because right. a classical algorithm is like order like complex time complexity order n if you have n items mm. you, maybe you have to look at them all right um, and quantum should be square root of n which wow. is interesting because of course now you get into smarter classical algorithms like the yes. b positive tree sort right where you're mm. now organizing the data sequentially into into leaf nodes stacked in a tree so that you jump from uh. node to node and Based on X many items, like, you know, a billion items, it means it's going through nine leaf nodes to find the answer, yep. which is pretty darn efficient. But in theory, Grover's algorithm with a, with a good quantum computer could do it faster still. 
Not that we wait a long time for for search. Unless so when you're when you're doing that as an iterative thing, like you take the value that uh, the first value that it gave you, and you tell it how close it was, and then it gives you another value. And yeah, I'm not sure if if, if you if you need to tell how close it was, you just need to retry and just retry. retry it. It's actually the same with Shore. Um, Shore is also a combination of a classical part and a quantum part, mm -hmm. so you need to have like two parts, and it's also probabilistic. So it it, it maybe tells you um, these are the factors. You just multiply them together, and if you get a, a fault result, you just try and run it again. Okay, and it's still quicker. Yeah. And the, the thousands of years that it needs to run on a classical computer. Wow. Yeah. So you, you get that sort of effect. Uh, yeah. We've mm -hmm. seen that with the D wave, which makes the quantum annealing, where it's like you just have to run this for a certain amount of time and then it, it'll never stop. You know, it never actually gets an answer. You just have to decide when you're going to collapse the function and it gives you what its best estimate or best answer was yeah. at that time. I have the perfect exercise for Q sharp. Mm -hmm. The, uh, infinite number of monkeys typing an infinite number <laughs> of keyboards <laughs> at what point will they turn out a shakespeare play right <laughs> just throw enough qubits at it yeah. right. how many qubits is that actually that yeah that's the that's the question how many qubits would it take yeah i don't know the answer to that <laughs> yeah and and the other algorithms like deutsch um mm -hmm. those are just complete crap um, because they do, they really don't do anything useful. Right. The only reason for their existence is to prove that a quantum computer can be quicker than a classical computer. Right. Just like what Google uh, says with the supremacy thing. Mm. Um, so, but that one actually helped me to understand also thanks to, to this book um, because... The Deutsch-Chasse algorithm? Yeah, yeah, the Deutsch. The Deutsch-Chasse uh, Deutsch is actually uh, an improvement on the Deutsch oh, algorithm okay. and the Deutsch one is very simple. Um, the idea is actually that um, if you look at a classical bit, he says that there's four operations you can do on a classical bit. Mm -hmm. There's like constant zero, constant one, identity and negation. Yeah. So you know these? So, yeah, constant zero will always return you with zero. Right. Constant one will always return you with one. Mm -hmm. And then identity will return the input. So, if you put input zero, the result is zero. If you input one, the result is one. And then there's negation. Right. When you input you one, the result is zero, zero yeah. and vice versa. Um, he says, if you have, if you created a black box, you have an input and an output. And inside of this black box is one of those four functions on a classical computer. If you input a value and you can see the result, do you know what's inside of the black box? No. The answer no. is indeed yeah. no, because yeah. if you put in zero and the result is zero, it can be constant zero, but it, it also either. can be identity. Right. Um, and he, he states that, okay, on a classical computer, if I run an algorithm twice by just inputting zero and then inputting one, then I know how I, what function is inside of the black box. So right. I have to run it twice. And then he actually re uh, he changed the question a little bit. He says, okay, I don't want to know which function is inside of the black box. I want to know if it's a constant function or a variable function. Mm -hmm. Constant meaning constant one or constant zero. Mm -hmm. Variable uh, meaning identity or negation. On a classical computer, nothing changes. If you insert one and the output is uh, one, it, it still can be uh, identity, yeah, which is variable right, or, or constant, constant one, right. which is... Uh, but then on a quantum computer... They, he found an algorithm, a very simple algorithm that you can write in, in Q sharp in, in two minutes. Um, that if you run it once, it can tell you based on the output 
if it's a constant or a variable function and you only need to run it once. So that was like the how? aha moment. How? Moments. Well, yeah, because yeah, it makes possible? no sense. But how? <laughs> it just does. It just, yeah, it's, it's actually by, by putting the two qubits in, in uh, you need two qubit, qubits. Right. Um, and actually it's, the, the algorithm is two parts. Uh, in, in the middle of your circuit is actually your black box function. So you have to translate your classical um, operation like constant zero, constant one identity or negation. You have to translate that into a quantum counterpart. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy to do when, when you have a qubit. You can also do the X gate um, to do um, to do like negation. Mm -hmm. And constant zero and constant one is very simple. Um, and then um, identity is also very simple. So you can you can translate those to to quantum. And then if you beforehand put those two qubits in superposition, and then after your black box function, take them out of superposition, for some reason, the final result when you measure the qubits, if they are both one, you have a constant function. Right. And when one is one and the other one is zero, you have a variable function. And then you can you can run it with the four different functions and you can see that the result is one one. Or zero one, right? And that's it's 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 very simple if you if you read it and if you program it in Q sharp and then you understand it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's fun that something so stupid and useless actually <laughs> proved. But it's sort of that moment where you're like, yeah, yeah. ah, okay, this is the unique capability. Do any of you have uh, either of you have any drugs on you right now? Because I could really use some. <laughs> You just keep <laughs> talking and then we'll get there. It'll all be fine. I try not to do drugs when I'm in a foreign country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's Dutch, so take him seriously. Yeah, right. No kidding. I used to do drugs. I still do drugs, but I used to also. <laughs> oh, well, it is, it is still illegal in Belgium. So, Yeah, right. Well, Johnny, where do we have left to go with this uh, discussion for those who are truly interested in quantum computing, well, I can I can only say from my experience that if you if you're really interested in this subject and you want to understand it, mm. the easiest way is to just play with it. Look at the examples in Q sharp, and if yeah. you don't understand the examples, try to 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 execute them in a mathematical way. That really helped me because. Mm. What a cool thing is, is that um, your your qubits, you can represent them as matrices, like uh, a math. Mm -hmm. So um, you can rep represent them by a matrix. And then all of these operations you can do on a qubit. You can also represent these operations as a matrix. And then if you want to execute an operation on top of a qubit, you just have to multiply those two matrices together to get your result state. Hmm. And that's what helped me really understand what happens to these states and, and really see the mathematical proof of the result of your algorithm. Because right. when I try to explain the Deutsch algorithm and I tell you the result is one, one or zero, one, it's very hard to, to, to comprehend this if you, if you don't see it, uh, see how, how it works. Do simple Q sharp programs take a long time to run? Um, no, no, no. It's, for example, if you, if you just do like a simple entanglement where you entangle two qubits together, we didn't talk about entanglement. No, no. Uh, but if you, if you do that in, in Q sharp, um, there, it actually means that the two qubits in the, in the end, uh, they always have the same state. So if you watch one of the qubits, the yeah. other one has the same state automatically because you, they are, they are somehow connected. And you can do that without signal R? <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yes, you can do that in, in, um, in Q sharp. 
And wow. if you run that like a thousand times, it, it, it will take a couple of seconds. Wow. It's very interesting. Crazy. So when can we uh, build a time machine? <laughs> I don't know about time machines, but they, they, they always try to, to, to confuse us with teleportation. <laughs> right, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There is a quantum teleportation that just makes everything a little more confusing. Right? Yeah. And spooky action at a distance. Right. Well, that's quantum entanglement. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. That's entanglement. Besides Q Sharp, what what resources does Microsoft have for us? Like, how how can they help? Well, I I, I know that um, in, in Q Sharp they have some documentation on Q Sharp. Obviously, mm -hmm. how how it works, what the syntax is, what you can do with it. Um, but I think the the real reason for Q Sharp is is also academical purposes mm -hmm. because you are really able to create the things that we know from .NET. You can create an application in Q Sharp, but mm -hmm. you can also create libraries in Q Sharp. Interesting. So you can really create algorithms or pieces of algorithms put them into a library that you can reuse later on in, in different yeah. programs so you can really split up your circuits or your algorithms in smaller pieces to to be able to reuse them mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. can basically create an assembly that 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 has part of a uh, an algorithm and reuse that and i know a lot of uh, like medical stuff is already happening hmm. with q sharp so they they are really writing libraries to do specific stuff wow all right, well, my mind's blown and I still don't understand it, but uh, at least I, I feel like I'm approaching it a little bit better now. So thanks, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...